Comics. Comics. Welcome to ORP, otherwise known as Omen Revelations Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Nunley. And I'm your co-host, uh, Steve Sellers. On ORP, we like to talk about geek stuff, pop culture, including movies and TV series, as well as comic books and comic characters. Uh, but that's not all, is it, Mike? No, it's not, Steve. We're also writers for Omen, Omen Comics and Revelation Comics. So we like to talk about both writing and our comics. So podcast and chill with us. Today, Steve and I are talking about Kevin Smith and at least some of his films. I personally got into Kevin Smith back in 1997 with Chasing Amy. I remember renting it several times and somehow it was always in the new releases section, even a year later. Um, anyway, I love Chasing Amy and I, I still do to this day. Um, I, I quickly went back and rented uh, Clerks and Mallrats as well and, and soon I was renting and watching them as a trilogy. I easily watched those three movies 20 times back in the 90s. Uh, Dogma in 1999 was the first Kevin Smith movie I saw in the theater, and I raved about it for a long time. Uh, but the View Universe, uh, well, it, it kind of started to fall downhill after that, starting with Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. And I'm honestly kind of glad uh, Kevin started making films outside of it. For instance, Jersey Girl is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, granted, it reminds me of my daughter uh, when she was young, and so it reaches me on a personal level, but I, I, I have watched it many times. But I'm curious about you, Steve. Uh, was Kevin Smith a director you followed at all? And, and if you're a fan, when did that start? Um, although I can't say I closely followed Kevin Smith in uh, some time, there was a time when I was a huge fan of his films. Um, I remember that I discovered him with Clerks, uh, though this may have been uh, before Chasing Amy came out. And then I watched Chasing Amy and then Dogma, and I loved both of those films at the time. Um, but I'm definitely more aware of his earlier films and his newer ones. Um, I also read quite a few of his comics, including his Daredevil and his Green Arrow runs. Um, after a while, I drifted out of my Smith phase, but I still have some affection for his earlier stuff. And I can appreciate that he loves the medium of comics and finds a way to get involved in it, whether as that's a comics store owner or doing shows about comics. I can certainly understand that. Well, I think he will always hold a special place for me. I am less of a fan now than I was at one time. Uh, so I think we're at least in similar boats there. Except I, it sounds like I, I perhaps follow him a bit more than you do. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you're a fan. You just got a little cooler, my friend. Uh, but let's get into the, the episode by talking about the man himself. Uh, Kevin Smith is a 52-year-old filmmaker, actor, comedian, author, comic book writer, YouTuber, and podcaster. Uh, since 1999, he has been married to actress and former reporter Jennifer Schwalbach Smith, and they have a daughter named Harley Quinn Smith after Joker's girlfriend. I guess he gets teased a lot about that. People go, hey, man, you ride, you know, thinking he got named after the Harley Davidsons. <laughs> he's mm. like, no, man, it's the Joker's girlfriend. And suddenly they think he's less cool after that. But <laughs> but I feel like I should elaborate. Um, Kevin Smith is not just any podcaster. Actually, 
he's kind of like Al from Comic Crusaders and that he owns the whole network of shows called the Smodcast Podcast Network. On this network, Smith co-hosts several shows, including Smodcast, uh, Fat Man Beyond, and the live show, uh, Hollywood Babylon. Uh, Smith also hosts uh, the movie review TV show, Spoilers. Um, as someone working really hard on two podcasts at the moment, uh, I find that very impressive. Uh, you know, for a guy who plays a character named Silent Bob, Smith sure is talkative. <laughs> um, there's no question that the man gets around. I I'm balancing around three pods as it is, and I agree that it's not easy to do. But there's no question that he's passionate about pop culture and being a spokesman for comics and film in particular. <laughs> yeah, Kevin is a talker for sure. In fact, <laughs> that's actually a common complaint from his daughter, Harley. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, we all love to sit and listen to Kevin Smith talk and tell his stories, but she's heard them a million times. And honestly, she seems kind of annoyed by the whole idea. But honestly, I, I can just see I, I can I, I can see just running his podcast network, uh, taking up a lot of his time. But but Kevin Smith is a real workhorse. And he also owns a comic book shop in Red Bank, New Jersey, called Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash, run by his friend Walt Flanagan, uh, which became the setting for the reality television show Comic Book Men, which ran from 2012 to 2018, starring his friend Brian Johnson, Ming Chen, and Mike Zapsik, uh, which was really just a truly brilliant idea. It was kind of like Pawn Stars, uh, but with exclusively geek stuff. I love getting to see all of the old toys and comics, and it was also cool to get to hear about the market value of things. Uh, plus, they got a very wide range of customers from just strange as hell to very cool or even famous people. Uh, so that really kept things interesting. I also really like Walt Flanagan and Brian Johnson's random geek trucks questions like, you know, uh, who do you think has the best helmet in comics uh, and stuff like that. It, it, felt, it just felt like hanging out with friends in that way. And it, in fact, uh, the show essentially amounted to Kevin and his friends getting paid to hang out and talk like they were going to do anyway. I mean, imagine landing a TV show that is basically just you hanging out with your friends and people loved it. However, despite believing that Brian Johnson and Walt Flanagan bullied the hell out of Ming Chen on that on a regular basis, I, I did actually really like the show. However, just to give you an example, there's an episode where Brian Johnson, Ming Chen, and Mike Zapatek all went to a flea market to compete on who could sell the most stuff. Uh, Brian was just a total asshole the whole time. Uh, I just could not believe what a dick he was. He, 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 even, he was even called out for it by one of the customers at the flea market. And he went as far as breaking Ming's stuff uh, that he was trying to sell just so that he could win. At least with Waltz, uh, it's just verbal abuse or, or making fun at Ming Chen's expense. And honestly, uh, some of that just goes with hanging out with the guys. But Brian and Walt were excessive with it. And, and, and many viewers actually complained about just that. And their response was actually that they were going to pick on him even more now. And that honestly kind of pissed me off. <laughs> but despite that irritation, I, I, I watched the show like the, all seven seasons, like five or six times. Uh, what did you think of Comic Book Man, Steve? Yeah, I have to agree on the Ming Chen thing. That that was not cool. But um, I'll be perfectly honest and admit I haven't watched very much of Comic Book Man at all, aside from a little bit here and there. Um, and, and I think it's a pretty cool idea for a reality TV show. Um, at the least, I think it's a useful show if you want an inside look of what comic book shops are like and the kinds of things that they do. And I'll admit I really like getting a good look at the secret stash. I mean, it's a cool-looking shop, and it, and it looks like it would be a fun place to work at if you're in the business of selling comics. But 
here's the thing. Um, I'm more interested in reading comics than appraising them for value. Um, in fairness, it's useful stuff to know if you're into that, especially if you're thinking of eventually selling your collection. It's also good to know how to preserve your collection. I mean, uh, there was a bit about this guy who kept his comics in a cigar shop and he got the smell of cigar all over his comics and that offers a useful lesson. But let's face it, uh, comic collection is not the business to be in if your main interest is making money. It really isn't. And and, I, and I'm with you. Uh, I buy comics because I like to read them over and over. Um, I'm not a collector in the sense of buying them for their value. Uh, but as for the show, I personally liked seeing the value of things, even if I wasn't planning on selling the comics. I enjoy knowing how much certain comics are worth for when I do want to buy them. I also thought it was fun uh, to see not just how much stuff was worth, but what kind of stuff had value. Like, I had no idea you could sell old board board games and all, all kinds of toys. Uh, plus, I live in a cattle ranching town where I was actually made fun of being for being made fun of for being a reader once. <laughs> so, hang, I enjoyed that whole hanging out with fellow geeks feels of the show. Uh, that's totally understandable. I mean, I can appreciate a show that's welcoming towards geeks of all stripes, and I think we try to be. Anyway, uh, Smith has done a lot more than uh, film and TV, so why don't we get into his other projects? Sure, Steve. Uh, Smith has been a regular contributor to Arena Magazine. Uh, in 2005, Miramax Books released Smith's first book, Silent Bob Speaks, a collection of previously published essays, most from Arena, uh, dissecting pop culture, uh, the movie business, and Smith's personal life. His second book, My Boring Ass Life, The Uncomfortably Candid Diary of Kevin Smith, I just love that title, by the way, uh, published by Titan Books, <laughs> uh, was another collection of previously published essays, uh, this time uh, blogs from Smith's website, silentbobspeaks.com. And it reached, actually reached number two on the New York Times bestsellers list. Uh, Titan released Smith's third book, Shooting the Shit with Kevin Smith, The Best of the Smodcast, on September 29th, 2009. Um, I will say that there are not many people from the comics world who have been active in as many different media forms as Kevin Smith. The closest I can think of is Neil Gaiman, who has done film, uh, television, animated feature films, novels, and other things. But Smith is well up there if he's not the record holder. Oh, for sure. I, I think he might be the record holder. I mean, consider this, listeners. Uh, we're not even done talking about all that he's done and, and is doing currently. In fact, my man Steve here is about to tell you about Kevin Smith and comics. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kevin Smith lives, lives and breathes comics, and they've always been a huge part of his life. Um, though I haven't personally read these, uh, Smith's, Smith's early uh, forays in comic books dealt with previously established uh, View Askew characters, and they were published by Oni Press. Uh, he wrote a short uh, Jay and Silent Bob story about Walt Flanagan's dog in Oni uh, Double Feature Number 1, and then he followed that with a Blunt Man and Chronic story in Oni Double Feature 12. Um, he followed these with a series of uh, Clerks comics. I mean, the first was Clerks, the comic book, which told of Randall's attempts to corner the market on Star Wars toys. Um, the second was Clerks Holiday Special, where Dante and Randall discovered that Santa Claus lives in an apartment between the Quick Stop and RST Video. And then third was uh, Clerks, the Lost Scene, showing what happened inside uh, Poston's funeral parlor. Um, this this story was later animated in the TV series style and included as an extra in the 10th anniversary Clerks DVD. So comics, cartoons, and film uh, weave into the Askew universe to form a larger whole, which is a trick you don't see done that often. You really don't see that too often. In fact, I 
and when I think about it, I can only think of three franchises that have ever done that. Star Trek, Star Wars, and Planet of the Apes. And as a side note, Smith, to my knowledge, is a fan of all three of those franchises. Star Wars especially. So I would not be surprised if emulating that was not part of his thing. Oh, I'd say almost certainly was intentional. I mean, Smith is too steeped in pop culture. Notes from those series. Um, Smith then uh, wrote the series uh, Chasing Dogma after this, which uh, tells the story of Jay and Silent Bob between the films uh, Chasing Amy and Dogma. Um, he also wrote the uh, trade paperback Blood Man and Chronic, which was published by Image. Uh, this purports to be a collection of the three issues of the series done by Holden McNeil and Banky Edwards of uh, Chasing Amy fame. Um, it includes a color reprinting of the story from Oni Double Feature number 12, uh, purported to be an early appearance by McNeil and Edwards. Um, these stories have all been collected in Tales from the Clerks, which also includes a new clerk story tying into the Turk Clerks 2 material and the story from uh, Oni Double Feature Number 1. They were previously collected by Image Comics in three separate volumes, one each for Clerks, uh, Chasing Dogma, and Blunt Man and Chronic. And in uh, 1999, uh, Smith won, actually won a Harvey Award for Best New Talent in Comic Books. Man, I really want to read that Chasing Dogma comic. That sounds cool. Also, while Blunt Man and Chronic is not a comic I would normally read, as it is supposed to be the three-issue series done by Bank Holdup from Chasing Amy, I do want to see that. Uh, I'm guessing that Harvey Award in 1999 was for his work on Daredevil, and if so, that was well-deserved. But I believe you wanted to talk about that run, Steve. Uh, sure, i love to. Um, so here's where I become familiar with uh, Smith's comic work, although I was aware of the Askew Universe books. Now, in 1999, uh, Smith wrote Guardian Devil, which was an eight-issue story arc of Daredevil for Marvel Comics, and it was illustrated by uh, Joe Quesada. Uh, this was the arc that ushered in the Marvel Knights imprint, which featured titles such as uh, Christopher's Priest's uh, Black Panther, which I highly recommend, and the uh, Paul Jenkins' uh, Jay Lee and Human series. Um, the success uh, of that line with uh, Smith's Daredevil as its flagship title is what led to uh, Quesada becoming editor-in-chief at Marvel. Uh, if you want more details on Guardian Devil, uh, I suggest checking out our Daredevil episode on ORP, where we go into the story in detail. Um, I will say that Smith took some real chances on the book that got real attention to it, and which set up uh, later successful runs on Daredevil. Uh, yeah, we, we talked a bit about that run in our Daredevil discussion, but I just have to mention that I was shocked uh, a couple of times during that run, like jaw on the floor, eyes wide open, shocked, uh, uh, but especially by the ending. I, I was not expecting the villain to be who it was. Oh, neither was I. Um, that, that arc loved to throw curveballs, and it did so really well. Uh, from there, uh, Kevin Smith would also do some work for DC that laid the groundwork for Green Arrow titles to come for some time. Uh, he produced a 15-issue tenure on Green Arrow for DC Comics that saw the return of Oliver Queen from the Dead and the introduction of Mia, Mia, uh, Mia Dearden, a teenage girl who would become speedy after Smith's run had ended. Uh, the Resurrection arc is a big slow pace, but worth checking out, uh, especially since it has some really nice art from Phil Hester. And uh, the new Speedy also would turn out to be controversial, since Mia will later be revealed to be uh, HIV positive. Uh, Smith's decision was likely influenced by the classic story, uh, Snowbirds Don't Fly, uh, which likewise dealt with social issues that affected one of uh, Oliver Queen's sidekicks. Now, um, Smith uh, later turned Marvel after this, but he was plagued with delays because of film conflicts. Uh, he wrote two uh, miniseries. Uh, one was Spider-Man Black Cat, The Evil That Men Do, and the other was uh, Daredevil Bullseye, The Target, uh, both of which debuted in 2002. 
Uh, Spidey Black Cat was six issues long, but problems arose when the third issue was published uh, two months after the initially scheduled release date. Um, as a result, the final issues were delayed for at least three years, uh, prompting Marvel to release an In Case You Missed It reprint of the first three issues um, as one book before the remaining issues were released. Uh, the delay in part was due to Smith's work on uh, Jersey Girl and then uh, Clerks 2, which caused him to shelf completion of the miniseries until the films were completed. Um, the book also raised some controversy over the issue of sexual assault, uh, specifically in the case of Fel Felicia's portrayal in that series. Um, Smith was later announced as the writer of an ongoing Black Hat series and The Amazing Spider-Man in 2002, but because of the delays on Evil That Men Do and The Target, uh, the plan was changed so that Smith would start a third Spider-Man title. But even that got away from Smith because of delays. Um, the book was eventually launched in 2004 uh, by Mark Miller instead. Um, Spider-Man Black Hat was finally completed in 2005, but Daredevil Bullseye the Target remains unfinished with one issue published. I doubt we'll ever see the book he completed, but I guess anything's possible, so I guess we'll see if it finally happens. Sounds like Kevin Smith basically made himself like butter over too much bread. I, I certainly get wanting to do a whole bunch of stuff. I know that I wish I could do that, uh, but there's just so many hours in a day. Uh, and, and Smith's plate, as we've been discussing, is pretty freaking full already. Uh, that probably was the case. Uh, he likely committed to more than he was able to do at the time, sadly. Uh, fortunately, Smith gets a bit more productive again uh, with his return to D.C., Though I admit I haven't read those titles, uh, Smith wrote the limited series uh, Batman Cacophony with art by his friend Walt Flanagan, which ran from November 2008 to January 2009. Uh, the series fe featured the villains uh, Onomatopoeia, who was a character created by Smith during his Green Arrow run, uh, the Joker, uh, Maxi Zeus, and Victor Zaz. Uh, the trade paperback of Batman Cacophony became a New York Times bestseller in their hardcover graphic novel section. Um, now, in 2010, uh, Smith wrote a classic, uh, well, maybe not classic, but we'll see, uh, six-issue <laughs> Batman miniseries, The Whitening Gyre, uh, for DC, which was also Walt, uh, drawn by Walt Flanagan. Um, the series was initially planned as 12 issues, with a long break uh, planned uh, between six, issues six and seven. After issue six was published, uh, Smith and Flanagan's work on their reality show, Comic Book Men, extended this planned break longer than was expected. It was decided in the interim to release the remaining issues as a separate series, uh, Batman Bellicosity, scheduled for 2016, but it remains unreleased to this day. Um, maybe uh, one day it'll see the light of day, especially with the rash of Batman projects getting the green light of DC now, but uh, for now there's no sign of it. Um, from there, uh, Smith spent some time at Dynamite Entertainment, mainly in adapting old projects that he did in the comic form. In 2010, uh, Smith published a Green Hornet story for Dynamite based on an unused script that he wrote for a Green Hornet film that never came to fruition. Uh, the, the story centers on children of Britt Reed, the Green Hornet, and his partner, uh, Cato. It was an interesting approach to take with the Green Hornet, though it didn't stick around for that long. Um, also, in uh, August 2011, uh, Dynamite Entertainment debuted Smith's The Bionic Man, which was based on a 1998 script he wrote that Universal rejected for being, quote, more of a comic book than a movie. <laughs> yeah, from what do you expect with Kevin Smith? <laughs> then, then, then in an interesting convergence in 2014, uh, Smith and Ralph uh, Garman uh, released a six-issue Batman 66 crossover featuring Batman and Green Hornet. Uh, Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet. Uh, Smith, Kevin Smith still appears now and again in the comics landscape to this day. Um, on March 7, 2022, it was announced that Dark Horse and Smith would be teaming up to publish the books of Secret Stash Press. 
uh, a new publishing line by Smith. Uh, the first two uh, books of the line include uh, Masquerade, written by Smith and Andy Mecklefresh and Quickstops, uh, written by Smith and set within the View of Universe. Uh, this is the first time he's explored the uh, Universe and comics since uh, writing for Big Two Comics. You know, it's crazy to think of all the View Universe content that has come out since it was supposedly done after Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Uh, <laughs> but we'll get into that later. Uh, first, we have to talk about some other stuff that Kevin Smith is doing or, or has done. Uh, Kevin Smith has a unique twist on a Q&A stand-up comedy style that I've really enjoyed. There have been five of them all together. An Evening with Kevin Smith from 2002, An Evening with Kevin Smith 2, uh, Evening evening Harder uh, in 2006, uh, Sold Out, A Three Evening with Kevin Smith in 2007, Kevin Smith Too Fat for 40 in 2010, and Kevin Smith Burn in Hell in 2012. Uh, Kevin is a huge storyteller and not a short one. In these Q&As, I've seen a person ask a question and Kevin will tell a couple of different annotated stories and go off topic a few times as well before getting around to answering the person's question about 30 minutes later. <laughs> That actually adds another la layer of hilarity to the show. Uh, Kevin's stories are very funny, and Kevin really tells them well. And and actually, he did do a stand-up special on Showtime called uh, Kevin Smith's Silent But Deadly in 2018. That particular show was filmed one hour before Smith had a heart attack. And that really stands out for that reason. And this was not just a little heart attack. The dude had a, a, a pretty massive heart attack. Uh, Kevin had really had to turn things around health-wise after that. Uh, but the change was good, and I think he's actually happier now. He seems healthier. Uh, he, he genuinely uh, uh, seems like he's doing well. Uh, but as, as far as my liking his Q&As and stand-up, I might be somewhat biased. I have been a, a Kevin Smith fan for 25-plus years, and Kevin Smith has moved over into the, well, you know how there's comfort food? Well, Kevin Smith is, is kind of comfort entertainment for me. Uh, I'm not usually one to follow celebrities' personal lives, but between interviews and TV shows, his Smodcast network, these Q&A documentaries that he does, and, and the live videos he does on Facebook, I do feel like I kind of know the guy. You know, uh, And it, from what I can tell, he is mostly an open book. And especially if you're following on Facebook, too, if he's having a thought about something or an experience, he will often share it with commentary. Uh, I don't know any other celebrities that are so accessible like that. Uh, what, what do you think about that, Steve? Yeah, I don't think there are too many others that would do that either. Um, but you're definitely way more of a Kevin Smith than I, fan than I am. <laughs> I'm a lot more casual in my interests. I mean, Smith is a person that I pay occasional attention to, but I don't watch like every single thing he does. Um, I vaguely remember that he did the occasional comedy stand-up thing, but I haven't really watched any of those. But I do like that he branches out and works in different genres and uh, formats as much as he does. Yeah, that's fair enough. Teach his own, as they say. But at this mm. point, I think we need to move on to the films that really put Kevin Smith on the map. And there's no better place to start uh, than the film that garnered him a cult following. Uh, way back when he was 24 years old in 1994, he released a low-budget black-and-white film called Clerks that actually won him a few awards, and we will get into that film in just a minute. Uh, Clerks would go on to launch a universe of films called The Viewist Universe that, as of this recording, included eight films. Uh, Clerks from 1994, Mallrats from 1995, Chasing Amy in 1997, Dogma in 1999, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back from 2001, 
one, Clerks two in 2006, uh, the Jay and Silent Bob reboot from 2019, and Clerks three, which is supposed supposed to come out the, this year in 2022. I've even heard tell of a Mallrats two coming up. Uh, the films in the Viewers universe are all set primarily in New Jersey, but clearly there are some films like Chasing Amy that also take place in New York and Jay and Silent Bob, which takes place in L.A., among other locations. The films are not sequential, but there are countless references made in each film uh, to characters or events in the previous films, uh, which are set primarily in his home state of New Jersey. Uh, this is actually something that has happened a few times with filmmakers like Shyamalan filming uh, in or around Philadelphia or George Romero filming in or around Pittsburgh. Yeah, uh, we also talked about that when we were talking about John Hughes and the way that so many of his films centered around Chicago. Uh, so that might also have been on Smith's mind too. I, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Hughes was an influence on Smith, uh, particularly given how steeped in the 80s that Smith is. Um, I think the difference with Smith is that unlike uh, somebody like Hughes, where the majority of his films were unrelated aside from direct sequels, Smith built an entire universe around it. Um, he Smith also added uh, the whole comic book universe element to his New Jersey, where all of his Askew universe uh, films are totally connected, even if they're not all in New Jersey. Uh, you'd have uh, characters connect the films, even if the story didn't, uh, especially when Jay and Bo Silent Bob made appearances. Uh, when those two guys showed up, you knew it was an Askew universe film. Oh, for sure. Jay and Silent Bob are definitely the biggest link in the Viewisk Universe films and in the comics. I mean, it would not be the same without them. But unfortunately, we have to talk about the darker side of Hollywood for a second, as it has had some very drastic effects on Kevin Smith purely by association. So between the years of 2017 and 2020, Harvey Weinstein was charged and convicted of rape, sexual assault, sexual misconduct, a criminal sex act, indecent assault, predatory sexual assault, and other things by multiple women from all over. In fact, it was this case that started the whole Me Too movement, and it even coined the term the Weinstein effect to describe men using their power uh, or their positions and wealth to take advantage of and sexually assault or rape women. Now, that is a horrible thing, and I'm not bringing it up to talk about what a piece of trash he is. I think that's pretty obvious. I bring it up because Harvey Weinstein's relationship with Kevin Smith. Uh, Kevin considered him a mentor and looked up to him. If you want to know how much Kevin Smith founded an uh, independent production company in, in 2011 and named it the Harvey Boys in Weinstein's honor. Uh, Smith is actually one of the writer-directors that Weinstein nurtured and took under his wing, a group that also includes Quentin Tarantino and David O. Russell. So they were pretty close. Uh, in fact, every movie Kevin Smith ever made up until 2008, with the exception of Mallrats, was either financed and or distributed by we by the Weinstein Brothers companies via Miramax, Dimension Films, and or, and or the Weinstein Company. Apparently, there were issues with marketing. Uh, Kevin Smith's film, uh, Zach and Mary Make uh, Porno, uh, for Weinstein, mostly due to the word porno being in the title. A lot of people wouldn't put it up in advertising simply because of that word was on it. Consequently, in Kevin's mind, Zach and Mary Make a Porno was not successful, and Kevin actually blamed Harvey for that. Uh, so the relationship had soured a bit uh, in 2008. It was not ruined, however, as the Weinstein Company co-produced Kevin Smith's 2016 talk show geeking out. However, all of that changed when in 2017, Kevin Smith heard about Rose McGowan being raped by Harvey Weinstein. Uh, 
Smith immediately severed all professional ties with the man and said on Twitter that he was ashamed of his relationship with Weinstein. On his Hollywood Babylon podcast, he said, my entire career is tied up with the man, adding no fucking movie is worth all of this. He lamented that in addition to working with Weinstein, I sat out there talking about this man like he was a hero, like he was my friend, like he was my father. He pledged to donate all his future residuals from his Weinstein-produced films to nonprofit organization Women in Film, uh, which advocates for the inclusion of more women in film production. Smith later announced that due to the declining appeal of his earlier films, the residuals from the Weinstein-funded movies may be lower than expected, so he decided that he would instead donate $2,000 a month to women in film. Meanwhile, all of the movies produced by the Weinsteins and their companies are now locked into legal dispute that I don't, I don't know what, what the end result will be. Uh, but I do know that buying Kevin Smith movies is a lot more difficult since that whole event happened. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible event. I'm not trying to downplay that on some petty crap, but uh, this has really made uh, building my collection back up again very difficult. <laughs> I can totally understand that, Mike. Um, I will say that I respect Smith for speaking out candidly about Weinstein and for donating the residuals toward nonprofits. Uh, it's an ugly situation. And if Smith genuinely didn't know what Weinstein really was, uh, as appears to be the case, um, I really feel bad for him uh, to be caught up in that. Uh, there are probably a lot of really talented people who did nothing wrong, who uh, have had to deal with the shadow of what Weinstein did because they were associated with him. And that's a legacy they'll have to deal with for a very long time. Uh, fortunately, I think uh, Kevin Smith probably is going to come out of it better than most, especially given his handling of the situation. I have to agree with that. I, I think Smith made the right call there, and I don't think he was aware of it at all. In fact, and and I could totally just be projecting here, but I, I can almost guarantee that when Smith heard about what Weinstein had done, his first thought was likely, what if that had been Harley? I mean, mm -hmm. his reaction was immediate and definite, but... But let's shift over to brighter topics and get into the films. Uh, the very first film Smith did, as I mentioned earlier, was Clerks. Uh, the roots of the film go back a few years earlier, uh, and it's in 1991, when Kevin Smith saw the 1990 film Slacker by Richard Linkletter. Now, uh, Linkletter had filmed Slacker in his hometown of Austin, Texas, rather than use a professional soundstage, and Kevin liked that. In fact, that was his inspiration to do that with uh, New Jersey for his films. In reference to Slacker, Kevin Smith has said, it was the movie that got him off his ass. It, it was the movie that lit a fire under him, the movie that made him think, hey, uh, I could be a filmmaker. Plus, he had never seen a movie like that before ever in his life. For research, uh, Kevin ga uh, gathered a, a library of independent films uh, from people like Linkletter, Jim uh, Jarma, Spike Lee, and uh, Hull Hartley. Interesting. Uh, I'm not really familiar with uh, any of Smith's influences for Clerks. At least I haven't seen any of those films. But those uh, are some pretty respectable names to work with. And I think it's probably also easier to make a film set in New Jersey if you're a beginning filmmaker with a limited budget. Not, not even Spike Lee. I'm, I'm kind of surprised by that. Um, 
can, mm-hmm. can I just can I recommend that you watch Spike Lee's Summer of Sam uh, from 1999? It 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 it's it's really my favorite film of his, and I've watched it many times. Um, I, I I think you might enjoy that. Um, I would say you are definitely right about the Jersey locations and budgets. Uh, I think the I think Troma Entertainment is proof of that. <laughs> can you say Toxic Avenger? Anyone? Uh, mm-hmm. So after assembling his collection of indie films, Smith attended Vancouver Film School for four months, where he met a longtime collaborator, Scott Mosier and Dave Klein. Uh, the course was eight months long, but wanting to save money for his first film and feeling that he had learned all that he needed to know uh, from the school, he dropped out and went back to New Jersey and got his old job back at the convenience store in Leonardo. Uh, yes, that convenience store. Um, that does explain why the sets look believable and lived in. Uh, I figured that Smith probably used a real location for the quick march in the film. Uh, certainly the interior set looks like a real store. Yeah, doing them in an actual convenience store and a rental place not only saved them some cash, but also added a lot to their production value. Uh, here's a little inside story about me. Um, I was once a clerk and I was, shall we say, a bit of a randle to the customers and really kind of a I had really kind of had a crappy attitude in general. Let's just say I was a different person back then, and we'll just leave it at that. But anyway, there was actually a guy who approached me about doing a clerk-style film where he would literally just film me interacting with the customers at Chevron where I worked. Uh, it didn't work out. Uh, my boss was definitely not into it, uh, but it's a fun story I got to tell nonetheless. <laughs> But uh, mm-hmm. back to Kevin Smith. Uh, so beyond Slacker as an inspiration to make his films at all, Clerks had a couple of direct inspirations as well. I have heard Kevin Smith say that watching Quentin Tarantino's 1992 film Reservoir Dogs, particularly the opening scene where they're all just sitting around talking about uh, what Like a Virgin is really about, is what inspired him to write a dialogue-heavy film with Clerks. He realized watching that scene in Reservoir Dogs that you could just have people sitting around talking in a film and you'll note that a lot of clerks is just that his last inspiration for clerks came in the form of borrowing the day in the life structure of spike lee's film do the right thing in 2004 doc the story of clerks kevin smith reveals that the original title of the film was inconvenienced uh then it was changed to rude clerks and then eventually just shortened to clerks hmm I can see the Reservoir Dogs influence now that you mention it, Mike. Um, that's a scene I've watched quite a few times, and it definitely has the tone and flavor of what Smith brought to Clark, so that makes sense. Oh, totally. Smith nailed that tone for sure. Uh, it's one of those things that seems real obvious after you know about it. Um, here's something interesting about Kirk's uh, just a little inside info. Uh, the anti-smoking sentiment in the film actually reflected uh, Kevin Smith's own viewpoint when he wrote the script for Clerks. In fact, he doesn't inhale in the film because of this. However, after filming Clerks, Kevin Smith became a two-pack-a-day smoker. Huh. This is an issue that I uh, have a personal connection with because my father was a huge smoker and I lost him when I was in my early teens. So I totally get where Smith is coming from on one level. But when it comes to taking an anti-smoking position in fiction, there tends to be a couple of different uh, approaches to it. Some people like to minimize it or reduce it and act like it's not a thing, uh, like Joe Casada did when he was in charge of Marvel Comics. Um, I prefer to approach it the Garth Ennis or Chris Claremont way where you honestly address the realistic consequences of smoking and use that as the lesson. Um, Smith did it a bit differently, which I find interesting. Um, I did find the way Clerks did it to be funny and pretty clever, where you had the mint gum salesman deliver the anti-smoking lecture and then show that the whole thing was a sales pitch. (laughs) It was a really cool bit of comedy, but also made a lot of sense too. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really just too bad about the two-pack-a-day thing. You know, I can't help but notice that Joaquin Phoenix is still smoking after working on Joker, and to my knowledge, he didn't smoke before that. Uh, I guess it's just an occupational hazard. Uh, but let's <laughs> talk about the behind-the-scenes and making-of stuff for Clerks. Um, armed with knowledge and influence, and of course, a script, uh, Kevin Smith decided to shoot his first film about clips in the very place that he worked as a clerk with his friend Brian Johnson working at the video store right next to the convenience store where Kevin worked at, just like in the movie with Dante and Randall. Kevin Smith has said on many occasions that Dante Hicks is based on himself and Randall is based on comic book men co-star Brian Johnson. Kevin raised the minuscule budget of $27,575 for Clerks budget by selling off his precious comic book collection and insurance settlements involving his car, which had been destroyed in a flood, uh, borrowing $3,000 from his parents and maxing out 12 credit cards. <laughs> to, to save money, Kevin Smith hired mostly uh, his friends and acquaintances uh, to play the various roles in the film. Uh, but it was this shoestring budget of $27,000 $1,575 that was a big part of why this film has been black and white. A number of different types of lighting uh, were used in this and would have required a lot of post-production to resolve issues relating to the varying color temperatures. Uh, with black and white, this was not a problem. The store Clerks was shot in was the actual store that Kevin Smith worked at from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. After the store was closed, they would film the movie throughout the night. This is actually why the shutters being down uh, the, with, to the whole film was written into the movie. They couldn't afford hmm. bright enough lights to make it look like it was daytime. Huh. Uh, sometimes the low-budget films allow a director to get creative in getting around those limitations, and Clerk is, uh, is a great example of this. In fact, uh, Clerks was a film that puts Kevin Smith on the map for me. Um, I think a large part of its appeal is that Smith is writing what he knows here. The experience of being a retail worker shines through in this movie. So when Dante puts up the sign that says, yes, we are open, I laugh every single time because <laughs> I've been there. I, I used to work at a bookstore, and every single time we open, we get people constantly asking whether we were open, even when it was obvious that we were open. Uh, Dante uh, constantly complaining, I'm not supposed to be here today, is another one that I saw a lot. Uh, when the film really lands, I mean, it usually is uh, because uh, Smith is making fun of things that actually happen in retail, even if they're exaggerated for comedy. And anyone who's done it knows that experience. Um, because of that, Clarks is a film that still resonates to me to this day, because anybody who's been there can relate to those situations. Oh, 100%. Being a clerk is a crappy job that involves a ton of really dumb questions, especially working at a gas station like I did. I, I the, the, the best, the, the restrooms at the gas station I worked at were in a separate building uh, right next to the store. And there must have been a hundred times where people would pull up right next to that building, walk across the parking lot into the store and ask me where the bathroom was. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the clerks is loosely based on Dante Alighieri's uh, The Divine Comedy, which is why uh, the main character in the film is named Dante. I've even heard that there are nine breaks in the film that represent the nine rings of hell. And that could totally be true. But there are way more than nine of those breaks in the film. So I'm not positive which ones are actually the nine breaks they're talking about. There's vilification, syntax, vagary, uh, purgation, uh, malaise, uh, harbinger, uh, uh, perspic perspicacity. 
I believe that is. Uh, Paradigm, yeah. Whimsy, uh, Lamentation, uh, Juxtaposition, Catharsis, and uh, Denouement. And I'm actually missing one or two, I think. Uh, do you have any theories on which one of those might be the breaks Kevin put in to signify the Nine Rings of Hell? You know, I, I'm not completely certain what Smith's intention was, to be honest. Uh, it's been a really long time since I studied the Inferno, and the topography of Hell and the Divine Comedy gets somewhat complicated. If I were to guess, I'd say that the breaks are meant to represent the different layers or bulgias that lie in the eighth circle of hell, uh, which is called the Balabulge. And yes, this is where the Balabulgia from Spawn gets his name, in case you were wondering. Um, there were uh, specific areas there laid out for seducers, flatterers, um, simoniacs. I mean, they were basically people who granted church favors for bribes. Uh, sorcerers, uh, corrupt politicians, hypocrites, thieves, the counselors of fraud, uh, the sours of discord, and the falsifiers. There are also four different layers in the ninth circle as well, um, representing the different levels of treachery until you get to Satan himself. Now, it might be that Smith was thinking of some of those, but I honestly don't know if his titles line up so well with the Inferno beyond just the Mad Connections. Fair enough. At least I'm not the only one confused by it. Um, one of the funnier moments in the film was Randall reading off that list of pornos while that lady was standing there with her daughter. <laughs> but check this out. Uh, Randall and the happy, scrappy hero pup lady, as she's lifted in the credits, uh, and her daughter are not actually in the same room at the same time. If you'll notice, uh, Jeff Anderson reads the first couple of lists of movies, which aren't bad at all. But as soon as they get to where he starts listing porno movies, uh, their, their screens are split. Uh, Jeff Anderson, who played Randall, refused to read the list of porno movies in front of her and especially in front of a child. However, to get the reactions from the happy, scrappy hero pup lady, they ended up having to read them to her anyway uh, when they did her scene. And actually, speaking of crazy shit that comes out of Randall's mouth, in the scene where he's talking about the jizz moppers having to clean up the windows of a nudie booth after the guys are finished, the customer that gets all offended, uh, played by Walt Flanagan, by the way, um, and what Randall is saying, and says he will never come back to the store. Uh, it should be noted that the guy is, in fact, buying paper towels and window cleaners, the very things a jizz mopper would need to do their jobs. Oh, God. I can totally get not, I can totally get not wanting to read the list in front of the kid, funny as it is to watch on screen. At the same time, I'm not sure how you do it without getting genuine reactions from them, though. That probably was the best way they could do that scene. Yeah, I would not want to be the one responsible for those words coming out of that little kid's mouth. And and you're right. Uh, that was really the only way to, that it could be done if Jan, Jeff Anderson felt that way. Graphic dialogue was actually an issue uh, they had with the film. Despite having almost no violence in the film, aside from, the, if you even want to call it, uh, the fight between Randall and Dante at the end there, I don't know, that, that wasn't a fight. That was just friends messing around. But <laughs> it was originally given an NC-17 rating by the MPAA uh, based solely on its graphic dialogue. The film's distributor, Miramax, hired an attorney and successfully got the MP MPAA to drop it down to an R rating without any cuts. That's actually saying something, as Miramax is notorious for editing a film without a filmmaker's consent. Uh, there was apparently an alternate ending to the film originally, where a robber comes in and shoots and kills Dante at the end of his shift, which Miramax believes should not be in the film, uh, but was willing to allow it if Kevin Smith wanted to leave it in there. Luckily, Kevin Smith decided against that scene and took it out because that, I mean, that just would have ruined the whole film, in my opinion. 
Yeah, that's kind of a downer ending, and I think it goes against the tone of the film. It might have been realistic, perhaps, but most of the film is essentially a comedy. It's too much of a tonal shift for me. I mean, I think the anti as a character deserved better than to be killed like that, and I'm glad that Smith changed his mind. Yeah, yeah, that that was a that was the right move for sure. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, Kevin Smith is a huge Star Wars fan, and he often makes references to the films in his movies. Clerks is no exception. And actually, he brings up something I'd like to talk about for a minute. In Dante and Randall's discussion about the destruction of the Death Star and A New Hope compared to when it was destroyed in Return of the Jedi, Randall points out that when the first Death Star was destroyed, everyone on board was imperialist, so they were all part of the evil empire. However, in Return of the Jedi, uh, the Death Star was still under construction and therefore still had tens of thousands of construction workers uh, still building it when it was destroyed. Essentially, folks just trying to feed their families uh, that were just there to do their job and had no affiliation with the Empire. Uh, my question uh, for you is, was it the fault of the construction workers for taking the job uh, that they should have they, they should have just known they might have they might die if they take the job or was it a careless action on the part of rebels or worse, a willing sacrifice on the part of the rebels, knowing that, that with their deaths, the empire would fall? Yeah, that's a tricky situation. Um, after the destruction of the first Death Star, it would certainly be considered a huge risk to take that job. I mean, Imperial propaganda aside, the entire galaxy probably would know that any Death Star would be a huge target for the rebellion, whichever side you're on. Um, also, we're talking about a job that probably takes away from your family for a significant length of time. This is a huge construction project. Um, I can't imagine anyone would do that without really thinking out the risk beforehand. And, oh, yeah, they signed up to build a planetary weapon of a mass destruction for a Sith Lord. Um, <laughs> everyone who took the contract probably made that decision with their eyes reasonably wide open. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say that absolutely everybody on board deserved to die. I mean, the risks were known, and I think the ethical considerations were as well. And sadly, this was a civil war. I mean, collateral damage sometimes happens, and there's just not much you can do to prevent it. Um, I don't think the rebels had much choice in that situation either. It was their best chance to capture or kill Palpatine. And any delay in destroying the Death Star opens up a greater risk that innocent worlds might die the way that Alderaan did. It sucks that good people may have been killed as well in that battle, but I don't know how it could have been avoided without greater loss of life. I see. Uh, the old uh, the old thing about uh, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the one or the few, if I might inject a little Star Trek into that discussion. I can certainly yeah. understand that perspective. Um, I think I fall on the surgical strike side, uh, but you do make a good point about them knowingly building a Death Star. Uh, that that just comes with risks uh, at the very least. It, it had to have been a thought that crossed their mind. Uh, but now it's time to talk about Kevin Smith's second film, which was 1995's Mallrats and serves as a prequel to Clerks. The film, like Clerks, was again written and directed by Kevin Smith, who also plays Silent Bob. Uh, many of the same folks that were in 1994's Clerks also had roles in Mallrats, including Jason Mewes, who played Jay again, but also Kevin's friend Walt Flanagan and Bryant Johnson, who would go on to start their Tell Em Steve Dade podcast uh, based on uh, one of Walt's lines in Mallrats and co-star in Kevin Smith's AMC show Comic Book Man. Uh, but the film also introduced a lot of people, including myself, to the likes of Jason Lee, who played Brody, uh, Claire Florani, who played Brandy, uh, Ben 
Ben Affleck, who played Shannon Hamilton, and Joey Lauren Adams as Gwen Turner. It should be noted that Kevin Smith was actually dating Joey Lauren Adams at the time. Uh, but I would go on to be a huge Ben Affleck fan as well as a fan of Joey Lauren Adams, especially after Kevin's third and best film, in my opinion, Chasing Amy. But we'll get into that in a few. Uh, we will. Um, a lot of directors tend to have that core group of go-to actors that come back in their films again and again. And, and it's probably because they're fun to work with or they're good friends of the director. With Smith, I'd say that probably included uh, Ben Affleck, um, Matt Damon, uh, Jason Mewes, Jason Lee, uh, Joey Lauren Adams, as well as a circle of friends that would show up in smaller roles. Um, Brian O'Halloran, who played Dante in Clerks, makes small appearances here and there in Chasing Amy and Dogma, where he played the reporter. And I have to admit, that's a nice group of actors to work with if you can get them. I imagine that the familiarity adds to the ease of production and working together as well. I know Omen Comics runs so smoothly because of how we have all become accustomed to working together. Um, but if we mm -hmm. could get back to Mallrats. Uh, granted, in 1995, this kind of raunchy comedy was more my thing than it is now. Uh, but aside from nostalgia, there are some things about the film that I still really like. But the first and foremost is Jason Lee as Brody. Uh, it should be noted that Jason Lee had exactly zero acting experience when he took the role, which is kind of surprising considering how well he does. In fact, he was a professional skateboarder up until that point. Uh, that makes it all the more impressive that Lee's character Brody was easily the standout character in the film, at, at least for me. And his performance really made me a fan. I was rolling on the floor with him when I first watched the film and quoted several of his lines for years. I mean, fuck you, fanboy. You fuckers think because a guy reads comics, he can't start some shit. <laughs> I still say fuck you fanboy to this day. <laughs> Another one I've used to quote back in the day was I suddenly want something very bad to happen to you. <laughs> in fact, Jason Lee would go on to do some of my favorite lines in chasing Amy as well. I have told many people that their mother is a tracer, for instance. <laughs> I also use the phrase agenda of rage to this days, but, but, but how about you, Steve? Uh, did you have a favorite character and, and were there any particular lines or moments that you liked? Um, I really enjoyed the Stan Lee cameo. I mean, there's a lot of Mallrats that I usually forget after a while, but that scene stuck with me. The Stan character in this movie uh, comes across as a believable person who offers real wisdom to Brody while he's processing his breakup. Nothing he describes in his story to Brody probably ever happened, but the way that uh, he talks about channeling that one regret into his superheroes, that rings true. Um, that's a real writer thing that probably many creators have done. And then at the end, when it turns out that uh, Stan really did make the whole story to Brody up, it's legitimately funny. It's a scene that hits many different notes, but it all works. That is a great scene, and, and Stan does it well. I, I'm particularly fond of the scene since his passing. Um, but speaking of comic book creators, let's talk about Kevin Smith's 1997 classic, Chasing Amy. Uh, there are many that would say that Chasing Amy is Kevin Smith's best film, and the stats would agree as well. Kevin Smith spent $250,000 making Chasing Amy, and it earned $12 million at the box office. That is quite a payday. From a quarter million to $12 million, that's a jump. <laughs> that that That's impressive as hell, especially for an independent film. It also ended up on several year-end best lists from critics. It also won two independent Spirit Awards, uh, one for the screenplay and one for Jason Lee's performance. Although, if you ask me, Joey Lauren Adams deserves some kind of award, award for her performance in the parking lot during Alyssa and Holden's fight. Uh, it was also the first time I had seen Ben Affleck in a serious role. 
I would go on to, to see him later in Goodwill Hunting uh, the very next year. Uh, and it was really those two performances that made me a huge Affleck fan. As I mentioned earlier, Chasing Amy is when I became a Kevin Smith fan. He had already gathered a cult following, and I happened to be dating one of them in 1997, and I was instantly hooked when she introduced me. Even Quentin Tarantino said that Chasing Amy was a quantum leap forward for Smith, and I think we can agree that Chasing Amy is just that, but I don't want to speak for you. Uh, did you like the film? Uh, uh, and when you compare Chasing Amy to Clerks and Mallrats, would you describe it as a quantum leap forward? And if if not, how would you describe the film and Smith's skill level, you know, comparatively? You know, I think I would. Um, I remember really liking this film when it debuted, and I think it still holds up now. Uh, there's no question in my mind that Smith improved noticeably by the time he got to Chasing Amy. I mean, Clerks was very much that little independent film that got him attention, uh, much in the vein of something like uh, THX was for George Lucas. Um, All Rats was Smith's next step, and it was a solid little comedy, but... I feel like with Chasing Amy, uh, Smith managed to make a movie that works both as a serious film that makes real points about love, while also keeping that uh, comedic edge. It plays somewhat like a rom-com in some ways, but it also deals with societal expectations and social acceptance uh, when it comes to relationships. Uh, the Smith who made Chasing Amy is a young filmmaker who is starting to mature at his craft uh, now that he's gotten a few films behind him. That maturity shows the way the movie is written and shot. Um, there's a real consistency that comes across. It sounds like you are in uh, in general agreement with Tarantino on his assessment then. And I certainly agree with that. It is certainly my favorite of his first three films. The script was really good. And I love that this film is about comic book writers and artists. You don't see that happen too often. Uh, but it was the cast that really sold the film, uh, particularly Mallrats alumni Jason Lee, who played Banky Edwards, Joey or Lauren Adams, who played Alyssa Jones, and Ben Affleck as Holden McNeil. Uh, but I also have to mention Dwight Elwell as Hooper. He was freaking hilarious, and the film would not have been the same without him. That introductory scene with him getting antagonized by Holden arguing with him and Banky Banky's racist comments uh, was a bit uncomfortable when I first watched it, but on rewatches it just cracks me right the hell up. I mean, just the audacity of Banky and then Hooper's over the top response just just hilarious when you know it's all just a, an act put on to sell Hooper's comics. Uh, I think my favorite moment in the film though is at the very beginning at the comic book convention when that guy is giving Banky shit for being a tracer. <laughs> Banky gets all pissed about it. I've seen Chasing Amy many times, and that scene cracks me up every time. Your mother's a tracer. <laughs> yeah, agreed on the tracer bit. I mean, that's one I quote from time to time myself. But uh, looking back on the movie now, I have to say that Hooper X is probably my favorite character in the movie. He is legitimately funny, and that scene in the con at the start of the film is great. Uh, I also love the, the moment where he and Holden are in the music store, and then Hooper spots this kid who's a fan of his, and then Hooper immediately gets into character and starts talking about how Holden is the devil. <laughs> but I also <laughs> like Hooper because uh, he shows a lot of real wisdom under the comedy. I mean, he may read too, uh, way too much into Archie, but he seems to really understand what his friends are about. And he gives the right amount of advice. But everybody is good in these roles. And you can see how Ben Affleck really started to make it big around this time. <laughs> Hooper X is a really great character, so I could totally see why you would pick him. And he definitely reads way too much into RG Comics. 
<laughs> but let's move on to 1999 when Kevin Smith's Force film was released. And it was a long time coming. If you remember way back at the end of Clerks, Kevin added Jay and Silent Bob were return in Dogma. Uh, but Dogma wasn't the next film as it was Mallrats. Nor was it the film after that because since that was Chasing Amy. Apparently Kevin and Scott Mosier just felt like uh, they weren't ready to do the film until after Chasing Amy. That, that really gave Kevin the confidence to do it. And honestly, I'm glad they waited. Uh, the script was revised a few times since, since he first started writing his ideas down in Clerks. And him and his friends and longtime producer Scott Mosier fine-tuned it both during and after Mallrats. As I mentioned when we were talking about Chasing Amy, Kevin really stepped up his game with that film. I feel like while Dogma was a different kind of movie, the quality of the film was still up there with Dogma. In fact, it's my third favorite Kevin Smith film after Chasing Amy and Jersey Girl. And yes, that put Clerks at number four. Um, as with Chasing Amy, Dogma was great. Uh, because they had really come up with another great script. And then they piled star talent to play the roles. Two View Askew uh, Universe alumni, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, had just come off of Goodwill Hunting, uh, an awesome movie and one that was well-received. Uh, so getting them on board uh, on the coattails and the fame of that from that film really added some gravitas to it. Another View Askew Universe alumni, Jason Lee, also came on to play the demon Azrael. Uh, so they were off to a great start. Uh, but they got Chris Rock to play Rufus, uh, Linda Florentino as Bethany Salone, uh, Sloan, sorry, uh, Sama Hayek as the muse serendipity, George Carlin as Cardinal Glick. <laughs> and can I just say that having Carlin play a cardinal in the Catholic Church is just fucking hilarious all on its own. <laughs> they also got a, the, the great Alan Rickman to play the Metatron, which was a fantastic um, grab. Yeah, I, I would agree with all that. I, I remember really enjoying Dog Dogma at the time it came out, and I still like it now. I mean, Matt Damon had made a small appearance in Chasing Amy as one of the people who were making a deal with Holden on the cartoon. But this is where we start uh, really seeing the Damon-Affleck duo in their full glory. And Bartleby and Loki are really interesting characters who have a well-developed character journey over the course of the film. The other thing that strikes me is I suspect that Dogma was influenced by a bit by British comedy. The intro sequence reminds me a little bit of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And, and the idea of uh, a comedic fantasy about Catholic theology reminds me a, a little bit of Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, a book that I'd not be shocked if Kevin Smith had read. Um, agreed that the cast is excellent, um, including some really top-notch actors, and the casting choices at times were really inventive including Carlin as the Cardinal, and I, I laugh at that too. Uh, this is a film that, that Smith had been building towards for some time, probably delayed until the time he felt he could do it properly, and I think the finished film is better for his having done that. It is better for that. Clerks and Mallrats, Kevin Smith could not have done Dogma justice. And also, before we move on, I love that Jay and Silent Bob tried to go to Shermer, Illinois from John Hughes' movie. And that Kevin shared his love for Hughes' films in that movie. That that was awesome. And, and as a huge John Hughes fan, I really appreciated it. Uh, now... A while back, I mentioned that Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back was actually supposed to be the final film in the Viewisk universe, and I'd like to talk about that film now. In 2001, Kevin released Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. The two characters had been so popular in the four previous films that they actually got their own movie, Nuch. The film was originally intended to be the final in the film in the Viewisk universe. That is why God, uh, played by Alanis Morissette, appears at the end of the movie, uh, closing the book 
book of the Buist universe. Of course, that wasn't true, and Kevin would go on to make Clerks 2 and Clerks 3, as well as Jay and Silent Bob re reboot, but we just don't have time to talk about all of those films today, so we're just going to stick to the original five as far as the Buist universe goes. Now, I'll say right now that with the heights of Chasing Amy and Dogma on their belts, Jay and Silent Bob strike back felt like a step down. Uh, don't get me wrong. The film had an all-star cast and it was fun to see many of the characters from the four previous films interacting with each other, but it was not on a par with the last two films. And it seemed to go back to the Mallrats days as far as quality of writing. Uh, as far as the cast goes, Affleck and Damon appear as themselves and uh, and as their characters from Goodwill Hunting, filming a mock, mock sequel to Goodwill Hunting, and and Affleck is really laying it on thick in that in that particular scene. Uh, but um, Affleck also played Holden McNeil, uh, his character from Chasing Amy in the film. And speaking of Chasing Amy, Joey Lauren Adams came back to play Alyssa Jones again, and Dwight Elwell came back to play Hooper from Chasing Amy as well. Plus, Jason Lee replies reprises his roles as Brody from Mallrats and Banky from Chasing Amy. Uh, Jeff Anderson played Randall and Brian O'Halloran played Dontel Hicks from their roles in Clerks. Brian Johnson played Steve Day from Mallrats. Uh, and last but not least, Alanis Morissette plays God from Dogma one more time at the end credits. Uh, but there were some big name cameos in this film too, like Carrie Fisher as the nun, George Car Carlin as the hitchhiker, uh, Will Ferrell as the federal wildlife marshal Will and Holly, Judd Nelson as the sheriff, John Stewart as the Red Reg Hardner, uh, Tracy Morgan as the drug dealer Pumpkin uh, Escobar. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Rock as the racist director, uh, Chocker Luther King, uh, Mark Hamill as Cockknocker and the voice of Scooby-Doo and, and a whole bunch more. <laughs> you know, this is around when I started drifting out of my Kevin Smith face. I, I, I think I just moved on, kind of moved on around that time, really. And it may just be a situation where this kind of humor just had less of an impact on me than it used to. Either way, I, I just didn't have the interest to see this movie for years. And the reception of the film didn't really encourage me to go, if that makes sense. Um, even after going back and revisiting Jay and Silent Bob uh, uh, Strikes Back uh, years later, I just don't feel that much differently about the film. I mean, this is a movie that spends a lot of its time playing with meta humor, and that just generally doesn't land for me. Um, though I will say there are exceptions here and there. Um, when Ben Affleck asks who'd spend money to watch a say in Jay and Silent Bob movie, and then all three of them look straight at the camera, <laughs> that was a good moment. Um, I, I got a small chuckle at the Scooby Gang, uh, gang appearance. Uh, mainly the moment when Jay gets stoned and the dog starts talking. <laughs> um, they, they, they cast the live-action Scooby gang really well, too, uh, including Mark Lucas, um, who played Riley on Buffy as Fred. And some of the celebrity guest appearances were fun, especially uh, Carrie Fisher as the nun and uh, George Carlin as the weird hitchhiker. Um, I just love that Carlin is just one of those guys who kept, Smith kept hearing back again and again while he was alive. I love that too. And and in that same way, I appreciated Stan Lee's cameo in Mallrats even more since he died in 2018. I find that I look back at Carlin Smith cameos in the same way. Uh, agreed. It makes you really appreciate how great they both were. But uh, I come away from this realizing that Jay and Silent Bob work best in small doses, not as the leads in a feature film. Um, I think the Chasing Amy description of them as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern meet uh, Vladimir and Estragon is probably on the nose, and look them up if you don't know what they are. Um, they, they're designed to be uh, walk-ins um, in someone else's story, uh, do their thing, and they walk off the stage. But part of the problem is making them the focus is that Jay gets really annoying when he's on the stage for too long. 
He's funny in small manageable doses, but he gets irritating the longer he's allowed to go on. I think that probably hurt this film, honestly, because Jay is going on constantly. Uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back just feels flat to me compared to the earlier films, but uh, this eventually leads to Smith trying a change in direction. So why don't we talk about that? I can totally understand that position. And honestly, with as big of a Jay and Silent Bob fan as I am, Jay does get to be a bit too much. And the pair really do work best in cameo appearances. I was not a big fan of the reboot either. Uh, but as you said, Smith went on a very different direction with his next film. Uh, Jersey Girl came out in 2004. And they call it a, a dramedy, I guess. Uh, Jersey Girl was written, co-edited, and directed by Kevin Smith. It stars Ben Affleck as Ollie Trinke, Liv Tyler as Maya Harding, George Carlin in his final on-screen appearance uh, before his death uh, as Bart Trinke, uh, a.k.a. Pops, Stephen Rude as Greeny, Mike Starr as block and the amazing Raquel Castro who played the who played Gertie Trinky. Here's a funny thing about the actress, though. <laughs> she has since grown up, uh, but I refuse to even look at pictures of her as an adult because it would shatter the illusion for me. <laughs> I need her to stay that little girl in my mind. <laughs> I, I'm sure that is no it, that it is no coincidence that Ben Affleck's character was named Ollie, considering that uh, Kevin Smith had just gotten off of doing a 15-issue run on Green Arrow for DC Comics prior to Jersey Girl coming out in 2004. I have to say that I feel like Smith really sprang back with Jersey Girl as far as quality goes. And it, it really marked a turning point, albeit a brief one, in the kinds of stories Kevin Smith could and would do. Jersey Girl, unlike Smith's other movies, is surprisingly a very wholesome film that celebrates coming into the next stage of adulthood and the family unit. Uh, in, in a way, it, it seems to lift up the common everyday man and woman with a family and a simple life. It, it even seems to say that being fulfilled and content in a simple life without all the fame and hustle and bustle of the big city is still honorable, uh, good and precious even. Um, yeah, I hadn't seen this movie for years. And after seeing it, I, I wish I had seen it back then. Uh, I heard that Smith had gotten back into form with this film. And I, I do think that this is probably his best after Chasing Amy and Dogma. Um, a, a major reason for this is that Jersey Girl is a more mature film than the kind of comedies that Smith is known for. I mean, not just because Smith lays off on a lot of the frat humor from his earlier stuff, but because he's exploring more adult themes and issues from a different perspective than his earlier films. Uh, the characters in this movie are all extremely likable for the most part, and the uh, story in general feels uh, more personal than anything Smith had done before this. Uh, there's an authenticity and realness to this film, and even the comedy bits land better than a lot of other Smith films. Um, I also have to give Ben Affleck a huge credit for this film. I mean, he shows a lot of range in his role as Ollie, and Affleck hits all the big emotional moments. I... I'm actually really happy to hear you say that. I could not agree with you more. Uh, Jersey Girl is a very personal movie and gets me right in the feels every time I see it. Also, Affleck did an amazing job in the film. Uh, Jersey Girl has some big emotional moments, too, so that's pretty impressive. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm guessing that Smith moved into a different stage in his life, and his art around this time was reflecting that. Um, I've noticed that happens sometimes to creators who started off doing edgier work and then started having kids. Um, they start producing either kid-friendlier or more emotionally mature stories. So this strikes me as Kevin Smith in a more mature phase, at least from my understanding of this film. But I imagine his core audience would have expected something different than a film like this, Mike. Am I too far off on that? 
Oh, no, you are not, Steve. Jersey Girl was not well-received by fans or critics when it came out. In fact, Kevin spent $35 million making the film and only made $36 million in the box office. Uh, one of the reasons the film took a critical beating, according to Kevin Smith himself, is that Jersey Girl was seen as a giggly two because it starred Ben Affleck and his then-girlfriend Jennifer Lopez. Uh, to try and alleviate that, uh, this Smith actually heavily re-edited the film to reduce Lopez's role to just a few scenes, uh, but it did not help as that was only part of the problem. Kevin had made a cult following about uh, about movies full of, in Holden McNeil's words, dick and fart jokes, and a lot of fans and critics hated such a heartfelt movie from Kevin Smith, specifically because it was Kevin Smith, the dick and fart joke king. That was making the movie. Uh, Kevin would go back to what he was famous for, but uh, things had changed for him. Uh, he, he wasn't a 20-something kid obsessed with chasing women in comic books anymore. He had matured, become a husband and a father, and much like Ollie Trinke, he had moved on to the next stage of adulthood. Take into consideration the effect that the story had in, in the succeeding Buick Universe films, too. Uh, in Jersey Girl, Ollie Trinke realizes that his simple life in New Jersey with his friends and family and the woman who loves him is what really made him happy. And he didn't need the big, uh, the bright lights of the big city or the great job. In Clerks 2, Dante has a similar revelation and decides to stay in Jersey working with a minimum wage job and his friends and the woman who actually loves him instead of moving to Florida with his fiance and a real job. Even Zach and Mary make a porno ended with Zach and Mary falling in love and getting married. Um, it's really a shame that this movie didn't make a huge impact on a commercial level. I mean, I remember reviews that were favorable at the time, but sometimes you become so well known for doing a specific kind of thing that audience expectations put you in a box. And it sounds like that happened to Smith here. But I feel like I should defend this film a bit more actively because I was genuinely impressed with it. Uh, Smith tried his best to transition away from the kind of films he was known for. And as a film, I think Jersey Girl succeeded in that. Um, I like that he takes George Carlin, who mainly appears in Smith's previous films as a big comedic character, and gives him this grounded, salt-of-the-earth role as Ollie's father. Um, Car Carlin's probably my favorite thing in this movie. Um, not just because he delivers on the funny lines, and Carlin uh, was a great comedian, but when he's called on to do the serious moments, like when he has to give Ollie an intervention about acting like a proper father for his kid, uh, he absolutely nails it. I mean, Smith also found a good child actress, which, by the way, is always a risk. And this kid is credible and believable. And she looks like the daughter of Jennifer Lopez to boot. And there are some moments that in hindsight are now un unintentionally funny. Like uh, Batfleck uh, picking up Gertie in the Sweep Sweeper and making it out like he's driving the map people. <laughs> there, there, there's just a lot of little moments that range from funny to heartwarming uh, to emotionally powerful. Um, I, I also don't really think it's fair to make the giggly comparison just because Affleck and Lopez were in this movie together. I mean, as you say, Jennifer Lopez isn't really in it that much, and we only see her character briefly in the beginning. Um, doubly so because Gertie's mother is not really the center of the story anyway. I mean, this is about Ollie's relationship with his daughter, and to a lesser extent, the family they built in the Highlands. And as you say, Ollie's journey is about realizing that he already has what's most important in his life which is his daughter, his father, uh, Maya, and the people he's built his life around. And I think that's a really good character journey that's delivered in an effective way. 
It really is well-delivered character arc that allows you to follow along with him. I particularly like that contrast between him starting out thinking uh, that his job was the only thing that he was ever good at in the beginning uh, to ending with him saying that the only thing he's ever been good at is being a dad. I honestly don't see how anyone who has a daughter, but especially a father, uh, even dealing with a aging or, or even dealing with an aging parent uh, cannot love Jersey Girl. I mentioned already about how Jersey Girl reminds me of my own daughter and uh, when she was young, and, and that's a precious time for me. Uh, but with aging parents as well, this movie gets me right in the feels every time I watch it. That dedication at the end to Kevin's father, for my father, Donald E. Smith, from 1936 to 2003, that that would have been touching enough considering the story that had just been told. Uh, but then that last line, I miss you, pop that man, that almost makes me tear up every time, uh, but my heart just goes out to the guy. Likewise. I have a feeling that Bart probably drew a lot on Smith's father as an influence. Uh, like Smith put a fair amount of his own life into the movie. And this is what uh, I think makes this film stand out. I, I think there's a real emotion coming from Smith and it's in every frame. Um, I don't tend to watch a lot of family films like Jersey Girl, but this one feels so honest and genuine. Like Smith wanted to make a deeply personal film about parenthood. Uh, I can't help but think that Smith was thinking of his father when thinking about fatherhood in general and the general themes of this movie. I mean, having to, to take on that role makes one look at your own parents in a different way. And I can't help but wonder if Smith felt that way too. Oh, man, it is baffling how much becomes clear in regards to your own parents once you're holding that child in your arms. And that understanding, it just increases as your child grows. Uh, Jersey Girl definitely touches on all of that. Um, but Kevin Smith did a sharp left turn after Jersey Girl uh, with 2008 Zack and Mary Make a Porno. And that's the next film we're going to talk about. Uh, Zack and Mary Make a Porno was Kevin Smith's second film outside the Buick universe. Uh, the film stars Seth Rogen as Zach Brown and Elizabeth Banks as Mary Linky, uh, the title's characters of the film. It also stars the great, a great supporting cast with uh, Craig Robinson as Delaney, Jason Mewes as Lester, the molester cock and stuff, <laughs> which is funny because that's not his porn name. Uh, and an actual porn star uh, and the singer for her band called Lords of Acid, Tracy Lords, uh, played Bubbles. And Jeff Anderson played the cameraman, Deacon Anderson. Now, I'll be the first to admit that this is a full-on sex comedy. And I'm not usually one to even watch those or even consider watching those. However, I watched this one simply because Kevin Smith made it. Uh, really, my favorite parts are all the stuff not porno related. I, I liked the chemistry between Zach and Miri at the beginning, and I liked them falling in love a lot. But other than a couple one-liners, that's about what I like about the movie. Uh, but here's something else that I should mention that I appreciated, and that is that the film reflects a lot of similar experiences that Kevin went through filming Clerks. Uh, they both made the film on a very low budget with just friends, basically. Uh, they both used a hockey stick as a boom microphone pole and and having to shoot the film in his place of employment at night when the store was closed and lastly delaney using money from his disability claim to finance the movie and kevin smith used his money from an insurance claim from a car that was destroyed in a flood to pay for clerks oh wow um i'll, I'll be honest and say i didn't even know about this film until you mentioned it mike uh, <laughs> but this is definitely not the kind of film that i would typically see either uh, i have to admit it just doesn't sound like my thing at all if anything, it sounds like one of the films on Randall's list of the happy, scrappy pup lady. <laughs> it sounds like the ratings for probably felt the same way, Mike. Is that right? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The film was edited twice and got an NC-17 rating both times. The final cut was also rated NC-17, but Smith took the film through the MPAA's appeals process and received an R rating without having to make any more edits. Although some television producers dropped the words make a porno from the voiceover and removed the words from the title card. The city of Philadelphia refused to allow posters for the film to go up at bus stops because they had the word porno on it. And they were good and pissed about it, too, because even when Kevin agreed to have have it changed to just say Zach and Mary, they still refused. Uh, for some of the more conservative U.S. retailers, the title on the cover of the DVD and Blu-ray was changed to just Zack and Mary, too. Uh, the original poster for the film uh, did not help things uh, as they made the, made the appearance of oral sex right on them, uh, having the heads of both the, both the two actors uh, down by the other's crotch. Uh, it's interesting that the Weinstein Company greenlit the film based solely on the title, though, so not everyone hated it. Uh, but Smith was just pushing too many boundaries with the title i'm i'm not even sure what he was thinking here i mean what did he think the conservative conservatives reaction was gonna be uh, he's had plenty of raunchy things in his films granted they weren't straight up sex scenes but the point is that he didn't need it it, it, just, it didn't need to all be said in the title in my opinion i, I would have left the porno plot line for the previews and just called it zach and mary Oh, man, that title is really provocative. And yeah, Smith was never going to earn brownie points from the Maryland's pretty crowd with that one. Um, on the one hand, I, I think the original title grabs a lot more attention. On the other, there's just no way that title would ever fly from mainstream audiences. I mean, Zack and Mary is the safer title. I agree that it just lacks a certain something. Uh, I'm not sure there was any real winning with this film, if I'm honest. I mean, Smith probably overcompensated in the other direction after Ger Jersey Girls, my guess. I can certainly see that as a possibility. Over Overcorrection could totally be the explanation there. Zack and Miri Make a Porno was considered a box office flop in large part because of what we just talked about, the word porno being in the title. But we've already talked about the advertising issues and Smith's frayed relationship with Harvey Weinstein. So you know what happened there. Uh, but one thing that really bothered Kevin Smith about the film being unsuccessful is that he took an actor like Seth Rogen, who was on fire at the time, or as the pros say, very bankable, and gave him his worst box office opening ever. In an interview with uh, Katla McGlynn uh, of Huffington Post, Smith said, I was depressed, man. I wanted that movie to do so much better. I'm sitting there thinking, that's it. That's it. I I'm gone. I'm out. The movie didn't do well, and I killed Seth Rogen's career. Uh, this dude was on a roll until he got in with the likes of me. I'm a career killer. Uh, Judd Apatow's uh, going to be pissed, and the whole internet's going to be pissed because they all like Seth. And the only reason they like me anymore is because I was involved with Seth. And now I'm a fucking ruined that. It was like high school. I was like, I'm a dead man. I'll be a laughing stock. Oh, man. Uh, Smith is probably overstating things, but I, I think he was hit pretty hard by the movie flopping uh, because Seth Rogen didn't uh, end up doing too badly after that, and he was able to make a pretty solid recovery from that film. Uh, that said, I can totally understand Smith's frustration after having a strong early career and then not being able to rekindle the magic he had after Dogma, doubly after so after what happened with him and Weinstein. Yeah, you know, it, 
it did turn out all right, um, but I can certainly see how he felt there. I mean, imagine being responsible for ruining someone's career if that's what ended up happening. Uh, but you're right. Things now did not turn out uh, nearly that bad. Uh, now, anybody who has seen Kevin Smith's movies would assume that Kevin Smith has always been a pothead. His movies are filled with references to smoking pot. Hell, the comic book from uh, Chasing Amy was called Blunt Man and Chronic. Uh, not to mention that Kevin directed uh, Afro Man's Because I Got High video. And, and, and in the video, his character Silent Bob smokes a big old joint with Afro Man and Jason Mewes. However, you might be surprised to learn that Kevin Smith was never a pothead up until Seth Rogen turned him on to it uh, after Zach and Miri uh, make a porno. Uh, Seth Rogen has said that uh, he waited around the whole time filming Zach and Mary all the way up until the last day of production uh, for uh, Smith to come up and ask him to smoke with him. But Kevin, not being a pot smoker, obviously never did. So Seth finally approached Kevin and said, what's up? Am I in a Kevin Smith movie or what? Why haven't we been smoking? Uh, Kevin said that he wasn't a smoker and apparently Seth had to change that. So it was that at 38 years old, Kevin Smith became a pothead. Getting stoned with and talking to Seth Rogen was an eye-opening experience for Smith. The clerk's director remembered how Rogen blasted the stereotype of stoners being lazy because Seth was working on so many projects and was uh, fantastic during the filming. That really affected how Kevin Smith started seeing potheads, too. Smith had since stated that kids shouldn't toke up, nor should anyone who is willing to use the drug as an excuse to be unproductive. Now, Smith admits that he is a massive stoner who wakes and bakes and even goes to to bed stoned. Uh, but he has one rule for smoking weed. When he tokes, he must be doing something productive or creative, such as writing or doing a podcast. Smith has credited his recent productivity on weed he, because he wants marijuana, but to enjoy it, he must be productive. I have to say that I'm, I am totally with Seth Rogen and Kevin Smith on the whole smoking pot thing. It does not make you lazy and unproductive. Potheads are not stupid slackers as a general rule, and I really dislike the potheads who generate the stereotype that smokers are those things. Yeah, that's a fair position to take, Mike. Um, I don't know uh, much about drug culture, and I personally choose never to take those kinds of drugs. At the same time, um, I don't contend potheads for their life choices either. As long as they're not harming themselves too much or harming hurting anyone else, it's not my business, honestly. It doesn't sound like it hurts Smith or his productivity, at least, and that's what really matters. It is. That is, that is definitely what's important. But that about wraps up our Kevin Smith conversation. But before we go, uh, let me say that the Menlo, Menlo Park Easter Bunny was better. And thank you to our patrons for making this podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.